Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I'm Connor Guerra. Well, a lot going on. A lot going on right now. Kind of quietly as we head into March. March, that's right. We're recording this on Leap Day, February 29th. You're supposed to tweet out your favorite leap of all time on Leap Day. That's what you're supposed to do every four years. Any come huh. to mind? Um, when I leapt, leapt, leapt to conclusions that LSU could win the West last year. That's good. Hey, that's good. I like that. That was a big leap. Pretty a leap that a lot of people took. It was a more I took a leap of faith on Matt House, and that was rock, buddy. Did you? Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, Matt House. We have a great show lined up. Jeff Collins is coming up. Yes, that's right. The new UNC defensive coordinator. Uh, great conversation with him. We're going to close with the jersey contest. But yeah, a lot of stuff going on right now. Combine is this weekend. Spring practice is opening up. We'll do some combine-related things early next week, kind of recapping the significant developments or the non-significant developments that people want to talk about. Um, and, and I thought about doing – I've done this before in the past, so I'm not trying to tell on myself here, but I've done like a questions I hope will be answered by the end of spring camp thing, but I always feel like we never actually get answers. <laughs> I'm like, why did I ask all those questions? What was the point of that? So we'll kind of break that up a little bit. Um, but a big storyline early, early – in spring camp, Harold Perkins. Harold Perkins is staying at inside linebacker. That's the key verb there, staying. I don't know that I've ever gone in depth on this show about a guy staying at a position. I don't think. Maybe somebody has an example in the archives. I can't personally think of one. But Harold Perkins staying at inside linebacker warrants that because this is someone who we were talking about being the best defensive player in the sport at this time last year. And then he ends up having a second team all SEC season. If you saw the story from Wilson Alexander that quoted Brian Kelly speaking about the need for Harold Perkins to stay in the middle of that defense, you probably rolled your eyes. Will, I don't want to assume that you rolled your eyes, but what was your immediate reaction as an LSU fan when you saw that? I think it's generous to use the word staying. I think they had that dude going on a world tour last year. That dude was playing all over the field for no good reason. So the concept of Harold Perkins playing middle linebacker, to me, number one, to your point, and unfortunately shouldn't be news, but they found a way to make it. It's like, you know, if we went out and played Joe Burrow at wide receiver, it's like, why did you do that? Let's play Joe Burrow at quarterback. And then number two, it makes me happy because it's like, remember Harold Perkins? He was fun, wasn't he? He was fun. He really was fun. And this innocent freshman version that we saw where he set the conference ablaze. Um, look, if you saw the replies, you saw the quote tweets, significant news. There are a lot of people that are just like, oh, God, here we go again. I do, however, agree with kind of what you're, what you're saying, what you're getting to here, that there's definitely a lot more to that. Just simply Harold Perkins is playing inside linebacker again. And we shouldn't just expect to see the guy who spent more times figuring out a new position than he did actually making splash plays. And that's really what this is about. Also, I'll say one of my favorite things. And like I said, you know, this is something that you told me today. I'm not, you know, Mr. LSU guy. Let's talk about Harold Perkins. I do want to say that. But one of my favorite uh, pastimes is going to any tweet that mentions either LSU or specifically Brian Kelly and seeing how Notre Dame fans have a lot like made themselves mad over it. Like you get into the hidden replies and it's like, yeah, typical Brian Kelly played a linebacker at linebacker. This is why we're better off. And it's like, okay, man. <laughs> like, how are you mad about this? The Notre Dame bots, they're they're everywhere. 
Even even the Catholics have bots. That's what I always say. Here in O'Shaughnessy, just mad at eight o'clock on a school day. Like, yeah, this is typical. Yeah, you can't trust Brian Kelly as far as you can throw him. He'll be playing quarterback next year. Okay, man, relax. Yeah, not a, not a fight that I would ever want to spend any sort of time on. Um, so look, my biggest takeaway from this this entire Harold Perkins usage conversation is that I care so much more about what Harold Perkins does post-snap than where he lines up pre-snap. Way, way more. The problem with Perkins in 2023 wasn't necessarily just about where he lined up. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If the goal was to make him look like a hybrid, somewhat positionless player pre-snap, Madhouse actually did that, and the numbers prove it. Perkins played 271 snaps on the defensive line, 254 at slot corner and 244 in the box with two at wide corner where some OC definitely was like, wait a minute, I've got my number one receiver lined up in the slot and I think they're in man coverage. Let's roll. Let's get into the outside hot route, hot route. That's probably Mm -hmm. how that played out. That's the thing that I think Blake Baker stepping into this role, replacing Matt House can actually replicate. Make Perkins the guy that the quarterback is always identifying. You can do that as long as you give him the freedom to rush the passer from any one of those spots. The thing that Blake Baker cannot, and I pray will not replicate from Matt House, is what he did with Harold Perkins post-snap. I'm repeating myself because we brought this up with T-Bob a few weeks ago, but here's a reminder of that post-snap breakdown for Harold Perkins. He had 320 snaps as a run defender. He had 291 snaps in coverage. He had 162 snaps as a pass rusher. That's the part I hate. That has to change. Even though Perkins improved in coverage and he actually graded out better in that area than he did as a pass rusher, according to PFF, the plan should have never been to have him play nearly twice as many snaps in coverage as he played as a pass rusher. Don't tell me, but Connor, the secondary was awful. I know the secondary was awful. I commented on that at every turn, preseason, early season, midseason, end of season, postseason. Yeah, it was bad. It was really bad. You know what else bad secondaries like? You know what else that, that is just music to their ears? Hey, guys, we, we have an elite pass rusher. He can right. speed up the quarterback I, instead of giving the quarterback five or six seconds to move around and find an open receiver against a bad secondary. They like guys that can rush the passer. LSU's defense was begging for splash plays and with its most capable guy of delivering splash plays at least post snap Perkins operated too much like a prototypical inside linebacker and not enough like Harold Perkins human firework ready to explode that's what he should have been that's what he we hoped he would be also don't tell me well Connor he actually rushed the passer a lot for an inside linebacker he did if you are trying to treat a 220-pound guy like a normal inside linebacker. That is not the case. He was fifth among FBS inside linebackers in pass rushing snaps. So again, you'd look at that and be like, hey, you rushed pass for a good amount. The problem is that 12 pass rush snaps a game for someone with his skill set makes about as much sense as Bo Pelini trying to play man coverage against the Mike Leach air raid and then getting mad at his players that they can't play man coverage against the air raid. Okay, Man, what's that got to do with this, bro? It just, it drives the point home. Every once in a while, I think people want me to just humble you 
and, and just needle you at, at, at some of these points. So, you know what? I got to throw that in there every once in a while. I didn't choose violence. It chose me. So, you know all this. You do. You know this. Everybody listening to this knows that we have driven home these points. You also know that seven pass rush, seven pass rush snaps in a season opening game with playoff expectations, playoff implications. I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to do this. You've heard all of this from me, and you don't need another Madhouse eulogy. You don't. Right. Okay. What you need is the Blake Baker blueprint. What's a birth announcement? I guess that's the equivalent that we're talking about here. That's the opposite of a eulogy. I don't yeah. know. Sure. He's here and he's perfect. Yeah, he's here. He's perfect. We did the whole like, yeah, shoot the blue confetti, the pink confetti out of the cannon. The purple I, and gold confetti. Yeah. Yeah. That's a gender reveal, not a birth announcement, but, but stick with me. You get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Blake Baker was paid the highest annual salary of any assistant in America after Brian Kelly gutted his entire defensive staff and claimed that Perkins' abilities weren't maximized. There is no way, absolutely no way, that Blake Baker is watching that film and he's sitting back and he's like, hmm, it's Harold Perkins' cap. There's no way that he is stepping in there and running it back with that same plan for Harold Perkins. That just cannot happen. Okay, it's got to be part of the job description. Maybe it was part of the contract for all I know. It, it just has to be different. Okay, Blake Baker was brought in as a known lover of the Blitz. I saw this from Colin Wilson of the Action Network. This is a stat that I've been curious about for a bit, and I was glad that he was able to point this out. Baker at Mizzou blitzed on 39% of the snaps this last season, and he had a 57% success rate in those instances both of which extremely high numbers. The downside, eh, you're going to allow some big plays. That's it's going to be, you know, that's standard football 101. You, you blitz a lot, you, you're going to expose yourself on the back end. You're going to occasionally let up that home run play. Quarterback that knows how to read the blitz can pick you apart. That happens. Mizzou's Achilles heel was surrendering those explosive plays. They were 89th in the country with 60 total 20-yard plays allowed. LSU was even worse. Yeah. Sorry. I was waiting on the punchline. There it yep. is. All right. Yep. LSU was even worse last year. Uh, and that's as a team that didn't blitz enough, right? I was about to say, that's the funny thing is that like Mizzou was like, there's a reason why they were giving up trick plays. LSU was just like vibes. It was like, we're just not it. Harold Burke is in coverage. We're not blitzing anybody, brother. Yep. And uh, it still just didn't matter. Blitzing more doesn't necessarily mean that Perkins is about to look like the second coming of Micah Parsons or Lawrence Taylor, both of whom were significantly different in their physical makeup than Perkins. I don't know why I'm using past tense for Micah Parsons. That was more so for Lawrence Taylor, but you get it. They're, they're very different. Similar to Perkins' physical makeup, Tyron Hopper, Mizzou linebacker. When Hopper was healthy, which he really wasn't for a good chunk of last year, he was excellent for that Mizzou defense led by Blake Baker. He had 14 TFLs in 2022. Kind of quietly, he did that. He got banged up in 2023, so the numbers obviously fell off. You'd think that Mizzou this past season, with all that blitzing, all the success that they had blitzing, you'd think that they would have linebackers that led the team in sacks, right? Like these guys are just getting home all the time. It's these exotic packages, and they're able to get to the quarterback. You'd probably assume that, right? Mm -mm. Nope. Mizzou's three sack leaders will. Darius Robinson, all-name team captain Johnny Walker Jr., and Niles Gaddy. Those are all defensive linemen, okay? Mm -hmm. The goal of blitzing and rushing the passer is to create confusion and panic. For one reason or another, 
LSU did not do that enough last year. Blake Baker was brought in simply to change that. I don't expect Perkins to be utilized quite like Hopper was, who averaged about nine pass rush snaps per game last year. Again, maybe it's a little bit different if he's at 100%, probably not. I don't expect Perkins to be utilized like Micah Parsons, who lined up on the defensive line 88% of the time last season, and he rushed the passer on 58% of his defensive snaps, which is just a hair more than Perkins rushing the passer 21% of the time that he was on the field. I acknowledge the fact that it's easier to rush the passer if you're lined up as an edge guy as opposed to being lined up in the box, or essentially that means, for those who don't understand it, that means like between the tackles on the offensive yeah. side of the ball. If you were breaking into someone's the home, mile zone, you'll know that as an LSU fan. The yeah, box. Exactly. Uh, even when Tennessee's got the really wide splits, I think that still counts as the box, maybe? Yep. Depends. Yeah. Um, if you're yeah, break- the, like, the, not to get, but that's a really good point. Like the Mike Leach box, quote unquote, because they played those wide splits on a lie, it's half the field. You know, yeah. so you could be a box line. That's why that was so hard to defend at the beginning because it was like, wait, I'm in the box right now. I need to get out of this. Yeah. Anyway. They're very different, probably, to look at and definitely took defensive coordinators rethinking their approach uh, with that. If you're breaking into someone's home, which you totally shouldn't do. Oh, great transition. Sorry. <laughs> right? Okay. Let's get to the brass tacks of this one. You're not going through the front door. Okay. You're probably following the footsteps of the wet bandits trying to get in through the side door, doggy door, which is about the only intelligent thing that they did before Kevin McAllister did Kevin McAllister things. We know this. Yep. But if we're talking about that LSU defensive line being an issue, they need help. They need help from having a guy that a center or a quarterback is pointing at pre-snap and identifying so that nobody on offense is horrified in the event that a heat-seeking missile plows through the A-gap untouched. Okay, Perkins can be that help, even if he's not making the splash plays. It's funny because we talked a lot a few years ago about Jordan Davis's brilliance at taking on double teams, freeing up the likes of N'Kobe Dean, Nolan Smith, he would still obviously sprinkle in that splash play every once in a while. Go go watch that clip of him tracking down the UAB quarterback. It's physically just a marvel to, to see that, to see him take the edge in that spot. Um, but we talked about that a lot because he was a 340-pound interior defensive lineman who wasn't sitting here racking up 20 sacks or 20 TFLs or anything like that. Perkins is a try and compare him to Jordan Davis. Uh, Perkins is a middle school kid lighter than Jordan Davis was at Georgia. 120 on, pounds. That's that's middle school, right? Come on. Bro. Wouldn't be a middle school, but yeah, that's a regular middle school. Kid. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about Perkins in the same way that we talked about. He Davis. is one Devonte Smith lighter. I'll never forget him. I always, for whatever reason, I always know immediately Devontae Smith, 166 pounds. Isn't that mm-hmm. weird? Like whenever yeah. I think 166 pounds, if I hear somebody else is 166 pounds, I'm like, all right, you're same, same weight as Devontae Americans Smith. Americans will use anything but the metric system. I love one Devontae Smith worth of rocks today. Anyway. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm trying to just get, I'm trying to lose like 10, 15 pounds. I just want to get down to Devontae Smith weight. That's all yep. I really want to get into. <laughs> Relying on Perkins to be the driving force behind an improved run defense is ambitious at his current size and skill set. And that's probably where part of the eye roll stems from, right? But relying on him to be that guy in the passing game is very realistic. LSU has to get better there. That we know. 
Of the 10 Power 5 opponents that LSU faced last year, seven of them hit 280 passing yards. Of the three who failed to hit that number, two were the SEC's worst passing attacks, Mississippi State and Auburn. They were all sorts of basura. They were. And the other was Bama, who still averaged 9.5 yards per pass attempt while running for 288 yards and scoring 42 points. Hardly, they simply did not need to throw the ball. That was the thing. They were like something like 13 of 15 on third down or something. I just remember that was like, well, I was like, wait, guys, hold on. This is what Milro needs to do. And they probably got away from that. But it was like every third down, just fall forward. You're unstoppable, man. Exactly. They they were picking up chunks of yardage just at will that game. I, I mean, what did they end up having like eight yards per play? I mean, that. I don't think a whole yeah. lot of attaboys were handed out to LSU defensive players in, in the post-game film session. All right. Don't mm-hmm. think that was happening. Perkins has a chance to pick up where he left off as a true freshman. Last year felt like a transition year instead of a domination year. We expected a domination year. We hoped it'd be a domination year, even with the position change, all that. It's wild to think that against bowl eligible teams this past season, he had two and a half sacks. It's not all about sacks. Goodness, this is a guy that had four sacks alone and as a true freshman in that Arkansas game yep. where he came about as close as you'll ever see to a defensive player winning a game by himself. That's still in him. It's, it's still there. But as talented as he is, his quiet sophomore season was a reminder that you can mess up great talent. LSU knows that all too well with Derek Stingley Jr. Okay? We know – I look, Will, Will. We, we got to drive these points home. We do. Because everybody is always just looking at, all right, well, just let him go play football. I used to say mm-hmm. that about Tebow all the time in the NFL. I'm like, I don't yeah. care what position Tebow plays in the NFL. Just go let him play football. Well, you need the right scheme. You need the right fit. You need a, a coach that actually knows what he's doing with him. LSU didn't, clearly didn't know what to do with an entire secondary when Bo Pelini showed up. That much we, yeah. very, we, we, we know, okay? A sophomore season with Bo Pelini should have read more like a night home alone with Freddy Krueger on the loose. That's the same thing. <laughs> True. That's probably the same way we'll remember the sophomore season that Harold Perkins had with Matt House. If Baker doesn't have significant changes to Perkins post-snap, he'll be remembered in a similar vein, and it'll hang over him, and it'll hang over Brian Kelly as long as they're both in Baton Rouge. If I'm an LSU fan, I'm hoping to see a whole lot more 2022 usage. As my guy, Jesse Simonson, pointed out, Perkins' pass rush rate dropped about 11% year to year. We basically wrote the same column 24 hours apart. <laughs> I shared that with you. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, Jesse is not copying your boy or anything like that. We just think very similarly. If that means conserving Perkins a bit by not having him out there for every single obvious run play, so be it. So be it, okay? He's he's still a work in progress there to begin with. You obviously can't have him rushing the passer on every play at that spot with what they're asking him to do. But I'd like to see him closer to like 250, 300 snaps rushing the passer for the season. That's about 19 to 20 pass rushing snaps per game. They can make that happen. This isn't yep. about Perkins hitting double-digit sacks and LSU's defense staying the same. That doesn't do you anything. This is about the guy who should be the best defensive player in college football, fixing what was easily the most disappointing unit in college football and being put in the right spots to do so. That's that's my takeaway from Perkins staying at inside linebacker. Yes. Um, 
See, I need to be aware because I think I've gone almost the other way sometimes where I'm like too mean. I've had like LSU fans hit me. I'm like, why are you so mean to us? It's like, I'm mean to the defense, all right? The offense, I can't say enough good things about. And it bothers me that we got to watch an offense that was arguably just as good, if not better than 2019. Had a lot more reps in terms of per game, but, you know, so multifaceted. Yet we found the way to, you know, the solution is so obvious you got two people writing the same column about it it's like not to you know but it's like duh you need he needs to play linebacker like duh and so it's and not to call that like you know but it's a bunny it's a gimme it's like a fast break layup it's like let's set the stage you know that this is how this needs to go and everybody but you know Matt House or, or whoever was in charge like he was the linebackers coach too last year so double whammy um but you know I will talk about Blake Baker very interesting guy in Blake Baker so it seems like when I imagine Blake Baker's defense, and this is just my layman's dumb self uh, impression of this, but it's almost like a, have you ever heard about like a heliocentric offense in the NBA, kind of like James Harden, where everyone's kind of floats around him? Yeah, I hate that. That's like one of the reasons I've held off on watching the NBA as much, which I realize is ironic as I rep an NBA jersey that we'll get to in the jersey contest later. Well, that's that's happening less and less. That's what we grew up with. Like Allen Iverson back in the day. I mean, Jerry Stackhouse was a guy that was heliocentric and not good enough. You know what I'm saying? And so we've actually gotten farther away from that. Um, <laughs> you're like, wait, that's my anger. I'm like, no, you're just a boomer. Okay. <laughs> it's getting less. But Harden is annoying. But point being, yeah. you know, when I imagine a Blake Baker defense, it's like heliocentric to kind of one linebacker. And that just might be because of the, the only few that I've seen. Um, but look at Damone Clark at LSU when he was there, right? Um, look at Hopper. You talked about it, Mizzou. Maybe that's not the most impactful player, but it's the most important player to me, right? Because you can, he gives these linebackers freedom. It's like he has a, a true quarterback of the defense, right? And why that's important, you know, you talked about the goal of the defense is create chaos and confusion, right? Well, last year there was some of that, but it wasn't, <laughs> it was internal, right? For us right now, for LSU, they have two pretty like big questions right who is playing interior defensive tackle me personally i'm not as worried about that bo davis i mean goodness the guys he's pulling diamonds into the rough i mean bo davis picks up a two-star in the portal get ready you know what i'm saying because that guy's gonna be a star we've seen that in the last couple of years not as worried about that the the dbs like you talked about have been a struggle it's gonna take a couple of years to get those turned around and i've even talked about you know like i'm fully picking usc to beat lsu i almost don't care what happens between now and then because it's going to be week one against that type of offense. You don't know who your DBs are. You don't know who your linebackers are. And it's so blitz heavy. I think they know who their, their DBs are. I, I actually do. Like, I, I, I think uh, we differ in that. I, I don't think okay. they know who their interior defensive linemen are. And I think that, oh. I think that's going to be potentially an issue. I, I, I'm, I'm more optimistic about Bo Davis long-term than I am, like, immediately figuring things out. It, just with the way that it played out with him at Texas. Like, yeah. by the time he was – Obviously, in year three there, it's it's a little bit of a different conversation than who they were year one. Well, let me say it like this. I mean, look, I'm talking about the DBs in week six or seven. Because look at the guy last year. It was Denver Harris, Deuce Chestnut, guys that were starting. Okay, we got guys on this team that those guys are gone, obviously. But think about the amount of hurt guys that we just only have practice film on if you're coaches. You haven't seen these guys in the game. So there's a very, very good chance for LSU. They start a group of DBs in week one against USC. They get cooked. Then by week four or five, they have a new group out there who's figured it out. Because, you know, Zion Alexander played, but he got hurt. You got the two guys from Ohio State who have not played at all. You know, then you got guys who play in the wrong positions. So the only place that I'm going there is that the defensive backfield is so unsettled, you know, that exactly what you just said. The best way to solve that is not to put Harold Perkins in coverage. 
it's to get him to the quarterback because yes. that shortens the amount of time that these uh, unproven DBs have to make decisions. Because, I mean, especially on defense, it's all about decisions on an individual basis, right? And you don't want to give your guys that many reps, especially in a new system. So that's my thing. It's a very blitz-heavy scheme. Uh, we're not exactly sure who some of the most key people are going to be. And so the way that you can stabilize that is by empowering a guy like Harold Perkins, right? And a lot of the comments that you'll see um, about him, like I heard some people compare him to Hassan Reddick, which I think is a little bit disingenuous uh, on the Eagles. He's a guy who's 6'1", but he's 240. You know, like, that's not Harold Perkins. He's not. just built, he's built different, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Like he's literally built different. Um, I see him more as like, uh, a little bit of the way that like Ray Lewis used to be an effective pass rusher where he was just a little fire hydrant and he would just shoot through the middle with rage. And like, you know, his rivalry with Eddie George was so funny to me because it was like every time Eddie George saw him, it was like, you know, mama, there goes that man. Like he was trying to find Ray Lewis because Ray Lewis would pop up and get him. And, you know, we've moved away from that a little bit in football, but this is why someone like Harold Perkins is so effective. Exactly what you just said. We don't want him to be, or I don't want him to be a stand up pass rusher or an edge rusher. You want him to be able to make the decision of how he fits into these blitz packages and how he can get to the quarterback because he is supremely talented. Uh, he has like awareness of his body. He is able to bend. He is able to get around people, but he does not have the size to be a pass rusher and edge rusher at the next level for sure. So any reps that you give him there are going to be uh, almost selfish because it would be more effective for you to develop that skill set for him to say, wait, 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 I see the quarterback. He sees a weakness in our defense. I actually am going to kind of hang back here and just, I can see where his eyes are going to go. I'm going to develop that skill versus, and, and versus, okay, yeah, we got this figured out. Let me like do my checks. Let me get in. Let me, let me, you know, do a pass rush and like do a late pressure. Cause to your point, the threat of Harold Perkins creates the chaos, right? Yes. When you, when you snap the ball and Harold Perkins is backpedaling barbecue chicken, <laughs> it's, you, you, you have no idea what's about to happen or, or, or you know exactly what's about to happen. You have no prayer if you're LSU because the quarterback has one guy they got to worry about. They see him backpedaling. They go, this is a win for us. Now, if you're, um, uh, what's his name? Brady Cook didn't go so great for him, right? That one time that he like had the pick in the Mizzou game and he's an athlete. That's the thing. He has great ball skills. He has great, you know, he has the ability to be that type of linebacker. But he's not, I mean, even Damone Clark, who we look at, he was 6'3". He's bigger than Harold Perkins, and he was the most prototypical old-school middle linebacker. I just found out, I should be watching the NFL, I just found out he's starting for the Cowboys at middle linebacker next to Micah Parsons, right? Not a guy who's on the edge. And he's still bigger, right? He has 6'3", 240, is a little bit closer to NFL edge rusher style uh, size as far as Damone Clark. And yet still, Blake Baker saw him and said, that's a middle linebacker. That's a guy you can man in the middle of the defense, make checks, do all this different stuff. And, you know, the issue is, I think his job on the coaching staff, I mean, he was like the the last good position coach LSU really truly had because I think the job he did with linebackers and specifically Clark was awesome. So point being, you know, if you could take that skill set and apply it to the whole defense and say, look, guys, we're going to give up chunk plays. I mean, if you're an LSU fan, you're listening to this, we're going to give up some chunk plays next year. All right, it's going to be. Because even with a good Mizzou defense, they were doing that, okay? In several years after cleaning up Steve Wilkes' mess, who got fired after the Super Bowl again, uh, he was still, you know, giving up chunk plays. So my thing is like, Let's not, you know, let's not misuse. It's like a SWOT analysis. It's like, okay, <laughs> I've been in corporate too long. It's like, we have these issues and these threats. Let's not throw all of our resources at that and take away our opportunities, right? And, and our strengths. For Harold Perkins, it's the fact that something like a screen pass, something like, you know, that, 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 that it relies on a missed tackle, relies on that little bit of trickeration, he can help you a ton. Now, again, he's not going to be streaking down the field, 
Um, but I'm I'm super duper interested by this and how it goes because it, he truly is, I hope, going to be given the keys to this defense that doesn't have a ton of leadership. You know what I'm saying? And, and we talked about this. Were you about to say something? I was I was going to say, yeah, yeah, I mean, he should be given the keys to the defense. Yeah. And doing that is not an easy – it's, you know, we can sit here and say, oh, yeah, I, I want him to be able to rush the passer this amount of times – and I'd love for him to be able to line up on the edge more and do this, this, and this. But one thing that I, I'm more, so much more focused on is, is that, that element of controlling this defense and being the guy that everybody has to focus on way more than what position do I have to put him in so that he's right for the next level. Let right. them figure that out. I don't right. care. Let, let, let NFL people figure out how they're going to use Harold Perkins there are so many more issues facing LSU that have to do with making sure that you're utilizing your best weapon and not letting it be a punchline that that is such a more pertinent issue. And if he, if he can be that guy, that, that leader that, Hey, I'm calling out checks. I understand things more because of this experience that I've had the last year learning this new position, then that's a net positive. It it is, but obviously you want to make him plays, man. You got to make plays in this league. You got to be able to to have that guy that's all of a sudden getting an offense off schedule and just make so much and just create so much havoc with everything that he does. And you're right, dropping back into coverage. Yeah, he might, you know, look improved there. He might do things well. He might break up a pass here. He might do his responsibility there, and, and maybe that looks good on film, but it's not changing the 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 outcome of a game. And that I think is what LSU is hoping to be able to to get back to. It it just simply has to. It doesn't have enough of those dudes yet on defense to get away with not doing that. Yeah, and I'll I'll say this too. You know, with respect to uh, kind of his role, remember uh, Brian Kelly gave that quote during his freshman during Perkins' freshman season, where he's like, you know, we're just kind of letting him play free right now. We're not really we're not really like bogging him down with the specificity. He's a guy who naturally can figure a lot of stuff out. And we joked about it's like the water boy. Like he's yeah. just out there, go see ball, get ball. That was his role his freshman year. Well, I think we found out in year two that um, basically, let me try to say this because I don't want to be unfair. You know, he needs a little bit more structure, I think, yes. because he's not the type of like a, this is an insane comp, but some people imagine him as like a Joey Bosa or like a true, like go get after the quarterback, every play pass rusher. He isn't built like that necessarily. So I think it would be more pertinent to us, not necessarily to develop his skills for the NFL, but to just develop those skills in general, because I think he is best suited physically, mentally to have to kind of eat his veggies and figure out what the right call is. And and a lot of the time when he was figuring out stuff, you know, by his athleticism, well, now you can incorporate that in a way. And Hey, this is a comp that we always joke about too many people make, but I think that as LSU fans, we could say this, Tyron Matthew, the way that Tyron Matthew evolved. I was just gonna bring. I was just gonna bring that up. Go ahead. Yeah, that that like Tyron Matthew, he played whatever he played football. He played whatever position he wanted to in a very schematically sound defense. Yes, where they had first round corners. I think he was the third defensive player, fourth taken off of that team. They had a great presence up front. They were moving the line of scrimmage, and he could just play the way that you do in NCAA football and Xbox and just get in a zone and go figure it out. With Harold Perkins, unfortunately for him, he's going to have way more responsibility. Yep. Number one is a linebacker. Number two, you know, with a new defense. And number three, just 
with the talent around him because he doesn't have the ability to be Bobby Boucher anymore for LSU to be successful. He needs to be a leader and, and grow up. And again, it's not fair. I'm not saying I'm going to call you out, Harold Perkins. It's more like for this defense to be at this level, Harold Perkins needs to do some of what Tyron Matthew did, but also hold back, also be sound, also take the gas off sometimes and and not just always be trying to make the big play because this defense needs sure tacklers. And he's one of the best we got. Who is he closer to? Mm -hmm. Joey Bosa or Honey Badger? Oh, easily Honey Badger. Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. It hasn't always felt like that. I don't know if mm-hmm. I don't know if it'll feel like that this year. I don't. But that that is and I I struggle to say that 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 should be the expectation because that almost anything comparing to 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 Tyran Matthew feels like just a slap in the face because of how great he was when he was on the field those two years at LSU. Mm-hmm. But like that's kind of what you're hoping in terms of impact, in terms of a guy that you're just like Oh my goodness, this is such a, this is the top storyline. It's not just top of the scouting report, but this guy is the top of, this guy is the top storyline every single time he steps onto the field. Can he do that? I'd like to think he can. I'd like to think that he is the right coach to be able to make that happen, but who knows? We're going to be super critical of this. Okay, we are. And there's, there's a world in which, and I, I would hate to see it play out like this, where it's like, all right, you know, a month, Go a month into the season or a month and a half into the season, he gets hurt. He's playing through injuries. They have to tweak things on the fly. And then it's a pre-draft season. So maybe he sits out a game. He sits out a game here or there. And all of a sudden we're looking up and it's early November and we're like, dang, we haven't really said Harold Perkins' name a whole lot this year. I don't want that because what we saw from him at his best was so fun. I know we talk a lot of offense on this show because – that's just kind of the nature of the beast. I'm sorry, quarterbacks, they, they move the needle. We talk about that stuff ad nauseum. I realize that on a year-round college football show. Yeah. But there are so few guys that can be that fun to watch on the defensive side of the ball with how disruptive they are for those like us. Now, for you know the film junkies of the world, obviously, there are you know if you're a guy like Cole that's sitting there breaking down the film, there are things that stand out to you that will not stand out to the, to the more normal viewer like myself. Okay. I fully get that. Mm-hmm. But Harold Perkins being the best version of himself would be a treat. If you don't have a rooting interest, if you do, uh, it would be the worst nightmare. It could be. Yeah. And, and let me say this really quick, like going back to the Tyron Matthew comparison, it's like, you know, and let me combine this with something else. Last time we were talking about being an offensive coordinator versus what are your duties, right? So if you take Harold Perkins' skill set and you write them down in like a pros and a cons list, okay, think about what they really are. Because let's go back to Tyron Matthew. Tyron Matthew was a great defensive back. He was also 5'8". Would you want Tyron Matthew one-on-one against like Julio Jones on like a, under the end zone? No. no. But he was great at ball skills. He had great body control. He had a nose for the ball and he could jar it loose, right? Kind of like Peanut Tillman on the Bears. Another great example. He was a great defensive back, not because he would blanket you the way that, you know, a Champ Bailey or Patrick Peterson would, not a shutdown one-on-one corner, but a guy that would make you pay if you made a single mistake, if you just didn't cover the ball. And those guys can be more impactful, right, as defenders. Well, Harold Harold Perkins, if you sit there and say, okay, we need to think about what your what your skill sets are and then assign you duties. For him, it's not about, again, chasing a guy down the field. But what it can be is something like a spy, 
something like a shallow zone. You know, that was a criminal negligence to me watching Jalen Miller run all over us because he has the body control, the ball skills, the wherewithal to go sniff out, like I said, a screen pass, a quarterback draw. If you have a mobile quarterback, I, if you're Blake Baker, that's not going to work against LSU. Okay, that's that needs to be your goal. Let's just eliminate that right here. We're going to put Harold Perkins there staring at you like Bobby Boucher, just going, Ooh. and the minute you start to kind of like, oh, I think I'm going to take off. Boom, balls out, just like against Arkansas. And so point being, you know, the closer you get him to the traffic, the box, you know, get him to where he can be a support on a play and jar the ball loose when they're used to the big guys. So so I think that's the deal. It goes back to your duties and your responsibilities, not necessarily your positions, but the type of coverages you're doing. You're not running down the field. You're sitting there making decisions. And so, yeah, that in that way, right, yeah, you could trust Tyron Matthew a little bit more. He's a little bit speedier. Um, but they have the same skill set that's why i always got mad at the jabril peppers like uh comparison because he was a safety he was a deep safety like that guy could you know he was running down field tyron matthew was never even really that in the nfl he's been making up a position you know he you watch how the ball comes out and how these guys track the ball even the the pick against mizzou i was just talking about it's like oh my gosh you have a superhuman ability it's like watching baseball like where a guy can just make a grab look so effortless that we would be like ah that's what they have you know yeah it's it's more difficult probably to to put him in good spots than what we anticipated after the start that he got off to, right? And mm-hmm. I think that we're we're finding that out. But man, here's hoping. Here's hoping they yeah. can get it figured out this year. All right, let's kick it to Jeff Collins. Really enjoyed talking about his new move. As much as it pains me that he is replacing my guy Gene Chizik, uh, I, I'm fired up for Jeff, and I can tell that he's fired up for this new role. So here's Jeff. Now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is new UNC defensive coordinator and friend of the show, Jeff Collins. Uh, Jeff, this is my first look at you in the the non-photoshopped Carolina blue. Uh, I got to say, <laughs> seeing the image. Uh, yeah. But I, I got to say, even though you're not rocking the SDS hat like you had last time, sure. um, it feels right. It looks right with you in it. I, I, that's, that's the the best thing I can say about a new coach in his new colors is that it just kind of feels right. Yeah, that, that, that means a lot. It's uh, it's very interesting. The uh, outpouring of support and congrats and love from uh, buddies from, from young and old that I played with or have coached with in the past and uh, friends and family that were so excited about this opportunity for me. And uh, I'm, I'm excited too. I got a lot I want to discuss with you, uh, but but take me into this this process because it's extremely unique where right. you had your first year away from coaching since you started in this profession 30 sure. years ago. And I know you watched a ton of football in the man right. cave and you were super dialed in. Uh, you knew that you wanted to get back into the coaching, but it had to be the, the right opportunity. Take our right. listeners into what a typical fall day would look like. And it could be Saturday or Thursday, whatever. It doesn't matter. Sure. Well, one of, one of the biggest pieces is uh, a year ago this time, I was presented with a lot of opportunities, uh, you know, my first time, you know, out of it. And it just didn't feel like the right time a year ago. Um, there were still some guys and some some ladies that had been on my staff that I needed to help find spots. Uh, so I was worried about them more than I was worried about me. And then got to spend a ton of time with my wife and daughter, uh, this past year. Um, but, you know, 
I didn't really know that I was 100% getting back in uh, until the opening weekend of college football season 2023. Uh, my wife and I went to support Jim McElwain, uh, Central Michigan Chippewas, uh, open on a Friday night at Sparty uh, up in East Lansing. And then the next day we went to the big house to to watch East Carolina play Michigan. And, you know, my wife looked at me during pregame warmups. We're on the sideline and, uh, you know, I'm watching the eventual national champions uh, in pregame warmups. And she looked at me like, OK, we're, we're probably getting back in this thing. And, uh, you know, but what I did in the offseason was watch a ton of tape, uh, did some consulting work, did some media stuff. And but, you know, after I dropped my daughter off at school in the morning, I would go back to the man cave and either hop on the Peloton and watch games or just, you know, I had some friends that gave me uh, access to Catapult, which is has the entire film library. So I would just watch games probably about eight to 10 hours a day. And, uh, you know, it was a really good experience. Did you have anything you learned doing that like they, that you saw on film that like when you're when you're head coach and you're just kind of in it and, and you're so consumed by so many other different things. But like one thing that you saw during those moments where you're like, oh, gosh, like I, this this had been something that had just kind of passed me by or for whatever reason just kind of stood out to you where you had this like aha moment. Well, one, one of the biggest things is just, you know, you, you sit down in your man cave and you're away from the game for the first time in forever. And you kind of, you know, trying to, you know, go through the process of what your identity is now that you're not in it. And the, the piece that I'm in, I, I enjoyed being a head coach, had, was a head coach at two different places, um, really enjoyed it. But the part that I missed the most was designing defenses, calling plays on college football Saturdays, you know, dialing up some mayhem, some blitzes, some pressures. Um, that was the part um, personally that I, I wanted to get back. And, uh, you know, I, th this opportunity with, you know, Coach Brown at UNC presented itself and it was it, it was just the right place at the right time. What was the the best football experience that you had? I know you talk about you know the, the trip up to Michigan. You were, you were, we were texting during that, and because right. I, I have roots in, in the Big Ten region of the country, sure. and you're you're an SEC guy, you know, a, a Southern guy through and right. through. But what was what was your favorite football experience that that you had th this past year that you, maybe you wouldn't have been able to do while coaching? Uh, well, the, I went to uh, Georgia versus Auburn, you know, down at, in Jordan-Hare Stadium. That was a, you know, good experience. I had friends on both staffs and got to be on the sidelines for that one. Um, so that was that was pretty good. Um, went to some NFL practices. So as a college football coach, you know, you go through the OTAs and you get to watch them in the offseason. But I had never been to an in-season NFL practice. And I went to a couple of them over the last year and a half. And that was a good experience too, just to see how it how it works uh, once they get into the season. I thought it was you know very informative and kind of you know changed my perspective of you know how they do it at the next level. You know, getting ready for a game. How different is, is NFL from college right now with with that process? Yeah, it's it's just because the roster's smaller, so there's a ton of walkthroughs. Um, there's not a lot of banging during the season. You don't hit a lot. Um, you know, the, the a lot of the coaching what happened in the film room, you know, in, in the college football experience, it is the second you step on the field, it is constant communication, constant, you know, whether it's getting the guys energized or make sure they know the calls or correcting, you know, mistakes or, or rewarding positive things. Those practices, there was a lot less, uh, they were letting the guys just figure it out and then they would go correct it on tape. And I thought that was a very unique um, perspective. Let them kind of make some mistakes 
let them experience it, let them process it on their own, and then correct it in the film room. That's interesting because I, I I always think of that of like that's the time to to coach them up. But there's a different way to do it. You don't have to like chew a kid out if you know he, right. he misses a gap assignment or something like that. But there's yeah. that that is definitely a a, a difference in philosophy. Um, the, the elephant in the room here is that you're replacing my guy, Gene Chizik, a man that we both sure. have great respect for. Yep. When the job opened up, what was your thought process? Because, you know, we talked about the, the premonition of, that, that your daughter had of, of getting you some sneakers, getting you some right. Jordans for, for Christmas before any right. of this stuff happened. But, you know, I, I've gotten to know you a little bit and you don't come off as like a I'll stay out of the way of my agent and just let, you know, my agent handle everything sure. like. What's that that process when you're kind of feeling out some of these opportunities? Well, the, the first part is Gene Chizik. I've had a ton of respect for him uh, for a long, long time. Um, and then he sent me uh, a very, very nice text after I got the job and just really appreciated that, that he would reach out, you know, because a lot of times in transition, you know, whatever the case may be, people are in their feelings or whatever else. Um, and I thought, uh, hold on one second, Connor, it's the computer's doing something. Oh, we're good. We're good. We power through. We call an audible. That's how we do it. You're still good on my end. Okay. Awesome. We got an hour and 29 minutes. We're good. Okay. Before the, <laughs> before the computer shuts down anyway, but, uh, back to coach Chizik sent me a nice text. Um, and just, I've always had a great deal of respect for him and just that gesture, uh, you know, was really positive. Um, you know, I went down the road with a couple of other places and for whatever reason, it wasn't the right opportunity at that time. Um, but I did a, I, you know, I was being interviewed by Coach Brown and the staff. I was also interviewing them, too, you know, because I wanted to be in a good situation with really good people. And just even though the, the, the interviews were over Zoom, but the conversations were genuine you know, you could tell how much Coach Brown cares about the team, cares about the players, um, has really good relationships with the coaches. And that was something that I really wanted to be a part of. And, uh, you know, so I'm just I'm fired up that it happened. Working with Max sounds kind of like a dream because everything I've heard about him is that he really empowers his staff. Not a lot of coaches sure. do that. A lot of coaches like to micromanage and he's just not one of those guys. I'm sure your paths have, have crossed at, at right. some point, like in dealing with him. Uh, even though you haven't necessarily worked worked with him right. before, but uh, what's it been like working with him so far and somebody that's obviously accomplished a lot in the sport? Yeah, so it goes back to he was doing broadcasting and was calling some games when I was the head coach at Temple. So I got to know him from that perspective. And obviously, you know, watching the 30 for 30s and seeing his Hall of Fame career, um, you know, you, you gain, you have so much respect for him. But then getting to see him in the, you know, the TV interview rooms and those kind of things and building that relationship. And then we both came into the ACC as head coaches, you know, him returning to Carolina, me going to the last place. And just the um, the relationship that we've built over the last five years and even in particular the last year and a half, like he would send me texts while I was taking the year off just, you know, thinking of you, you know, whatever the case may be. And just, you know, that kind of thing is rare. Um, and he went out of his way to do it for me when he didn't have to. And then this opportunity presented itself and getting here and being around him on a daily basis is just, he's better than advertised. 
You know, just the, the level of care that he has for his staff, the level of care that he has for his players. His wife, Sally, is in the building almost on a daily basis, eating lunch or dinner with him and interacting with the players. Um, and he's a he's a big texter, too. So I don't know if that's a well-known fact, but he's, uh, you know, I'm on a couple of text threads with him or group texts and just the engagement and the knowledge and wisdom and the, the level of care that he has is just wonderful to see. Yeah, it's it's interesting because now, you know, when Saban steps aside and it's kind of like, all right, college football needs a new elder statesman and it's, sure. it's somebody like Mac or, or Kirk yep. Ferentz at Iowa or, you know, Kyle Whittingham is, is somebody that's thrown into the conversation as well. Like, do you get the sense, though, that he's a guy that, like, despite what people might say or look at that number and, you know, they, they might look at the, the changing landscape of the sport, like, do you get a different impression of a guy that still has plenty of good years left? Is that kind of been your takeaway so far? hundred <laughs> percent. He's got so much energy. He's got so much juice. Uh, he walks in the team meeting room with the guys and just the level of engagement uh, that he has with the guys, uh, the energy level that he has. And the thing that's been beneficial for me is I'm so happy that I'm in the defense coordinator role and so happy I'm in it with him because I'm getting to see a Hall of Famer in action every day handling this new landscape and handle it with class, handle it with care, uh, handle it with uh, foresight and from all of his years of experience, but he has a freshness about him that is just is just really cool. Yeah, I've heard him on interviews before, and I'm like, golly, but there's still there's no reason why anybody wouldn't want to play for for. And, and he know he knows every single person's name in the building. You know, we go into high schools or whatever. He knows or the the North Carolina coaches clinic we went to what two weeks ago. He knew everybody, and he knew them by name, and that's a that's a. That's a skill I've not mastered yet, um, but hopefully just being around him and watch him, you know, in action, hopefully it'll rub off on me. I'm sure it's been a little bit of an adjustment for you being in an assistant role for the first time in eight years, even though obviously you have plenty of experience in, in that area, but sure. you have full control of the defense. In, in all four of your coordinator jobs, you've had full autonomy of the defense with sure. an offensive-minded head coach. How important is that for you? Yeah, I, I love it. I appreciate it. And, you know, the level of trust that, you know, Coach Mack has, you know, given me, um, you know, I do not take that responsibility uh, responsibility lightly. And, uh, you know, I think the sense in the building is everybody just wants to make Mack proud and they want to do right by Mack. And I think that's a that's a great quality as well, you know, that he fosters that by his genuine nature, who he is, the the fact that he allows you to do your job and then presents things. Hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Are we doing this? Hey, we need to make sure we're doing these five things on defense as we build this and, uh, you know, take all of that to heart and um, truly appreciate it. Even though, you know, we've had success doing what we've done defensively, just getting his perspective is awesome. Is, is it possible to call plays as a head coach anymore? Like, is it possible to be a primary play caller as a head coach? Like, you've seen both sides of it and, like, know right. what that's like. Is In this day and age of college football, is there is there something to be said for, for how that's changed? Yeah, the last three years, I wasn't able to. Um, the previous ones, when I was at Temple, I was involved a great deal. Um, and even the first year at the last place, I was involved a great deal. But then, you know, all the things that happened, you know, COVID and the super seniors and all those things that were, you know, that came into the sport, um, it became less and less that you could be, that I could be 
um, the primary play caller, you know, trying to figure all those things out. Um, so this is a nice reset for me. I get to go back to doing what I love to do and, uh, you know, working for somebody that gives me the ability and has, has a staff around us that are, that are big time ball coaches. I watch a lot of these HGTV shows with my wife. I'm, I'm man enough to admit it. You know, it's, okay, it's yeah. the give and take. Rico to the rescue. That's our current jam right now. Hey. Really good show. Really good. Gotcha. Show. I don't know that one. <laughs> I'm always interested in what they feel like is the first thing that they've absolutely got to come in and fix or come in and redo. Sure. When you took this job and, and you watched UNC in this defense and not to throw like Chizik under the bus yeah, or, or anything like that, but like, what was the, the, the thing that you felt like you had to come in and, and fix right away? And you're like, all right, that that's the area that I got to start. Well, I think uh, uh, one of the big, and this is a compliment to coach Chizik. There were some, there were some games that it was really good, you know, where, the defense was playing and they were balling out and they were flying around. You know, there's a lot of good things to build off of. And I think the, the, you know, one of the things that I looked at when I was evaluating whether this was the right opportunity was the roster. You know, I wanted to make sure I did a deep dive into, you know, the returners, obviously um, the guys that may be like a Cedric gray, number 33. That's a great, he'll be, you know, first two rounds in the NFL. Um, the guys that were coming in to replace him, making sure they were of quality, and then the signing class and even the transfer class. Um, and I think Coach Max signed like 28 guys that were here in January, which is amazing. So all of those things, returning defensive line was huge for me. I mean, there's some kind of – there's some real dudes on the front four that, that we've got to work with, and it goes too deep easily. Um, and then, you know, Power Eccles is one of the top linebackers in the league. And then Amari Campbell is the one who will step in for Cedric Gray. And the games that he played, he, he was phenomenal. And there's a lot of good returning talent um, in the secondary. Elijah Huzzy, Marcus Allen at corner, really good. And then you've got Stick Lane and Dre Boykins hopefully will be back. And Caleb Cost uh, played really well at times that he got the shot uh, this past season. And then we signed probably six of the best DBs in the country last year. All of them are sub 10, 700 meter guys. And they have length and they have size and they've got a competitive nature to them too. So I've got to see them during the offseason workouts. And uh, it, there, there's a lot to be excited about. Is How difficult is that, is that process? Like going into this now knowing, okay, I've got to look at what I have in the spring. Yep. And then when that window opens, because you could have some guys that are like, hey, you know what, scheme fits just not for me, or maybe I'm not where I'm at on the depth chart, and like evaluating that, and then also trying to balance that with, you know, looking at guys in the portal and like, hey, this guy sure. just hit the portal. We've got to do a quick evaluation. Like, how is that? Is that process a, a challenge? Like, have you kind of thought about like what's going to go into that? Well, I think one of the biggest things, and this is, you, you've known me for a while, and the philosophy for me is I've never really had a depth chart, and Coach Mack doesn't really have a depth chart either. And playing a lot of guys has been the hallmark of what we've done defensively, you know, all the way back, FIU, Mississippi State, Florida, play a lot of guys. And in this day and age, that's what you need to do anyway. But that's already a naturally inherent built-in part of our system and Coach Brown's system as well. And, uh, you know, one of the first things we did, and, you know, I do this all the time, is watch the explosive plays. So the big passes that were given up last year, the big runs that were given up last year, and we tallied why it happened. And so we had a, a, 
a tick mark and we tallied them up and that gave us the insight of what we need to fix based on those numbers and those metrics. Then we watched all of the games from last year, really the last two years with the staff, talk through terminology, what can we salvage as far as verbiage goes. And then we watched all the tape uh, from when we were at Temple and we were at Florida and even Mississippi State so I could teach them, you know, how what we do and how we do it and how we could merge the best of what we've done with what our skill set is of our players that are returning so we can put the best product on the field and, you know, kind of challenge the guys. Here's what we're going to do schematically that fits you as a group, as a collective, and then here's how we want you to play the game and let's meet in the middle and produce a really good defense that Coach Brown and, uh, you know, the UNC fan base can be proud of. You just reminded me of something that I've been wanting to ask you for a while and for whatever reason right. it's just slipped my mind. Explosive play rate, is that more valuable now than turnover rate? Uh, I don't know that. I think it's probably some mix and some combination of both. Um, creating turnovers is one of the biggest things you've got to do. And one of the statistics that, that showed up, and I explained this to the defense last Wednesday in our unit meeting, was where we ranked on first down defense. So nationally, we were 123rd in the country in first down defense. And so what that leads to is the, the numbers get skewed if you're not really good at that, you know, situation. But if you can get them in second and long, you can get them in third and long. That's when the turnovers happen. But you've got to win first down, you know, to, to begin the drive. And that's a big emphasis for us. And, you know, you know, knock on wood, we've had a ton of success creating mayhem, creating chaos, tackles for loss, sacks. And then when you get people behind the sticks, that's when the turnovers come. And so that'll be the big point of emphasis for us is just playing big time, aggressive uh, first down defense. I imagine in the last couple of months, it's been kind of kicked up into overdrive, but the minister of mayhem just daydreams about pressure packages and yes. stuff like that. Like that's, yes. that's the, that's gotta be like the main thing on your mind. If you did like the, the word cloud, it's just pressure packages and yes. stuff like that. Like, how much goes into that process of trying to figure out unique ways to be able to pressure the quarterback? Well, I think one of the biggest things, too, is how you present it to the guys. So we build all of our pre pressure packages, and I won't say the names that we use, but we build the pressure packages into families. So if you know it fits into this family, well, we can do all kinds of sexy stuff, but it's easy for the players. Like if you do too much and you have too much verbiage and too much chaos going on, and the guys can't execute it, well, then you've got a problem. But well, we try to make it where the guys can play ridiculously fast, wide of the football, play with good fundamentals and technique, but teach it in such a way that it's digestible, fun, uh, so they want to learn it, and then they go out there and just cut it loose and play fast. Last one for you. And it's not a question. It's just a statement of fact. Uh, Jameer Gibbs is the best. I think we, we agree on sure. that. Uh, I hope you can talk him into rocking some Carolina blue just for you. Have you been able to, to send him some UNC swag and kind of get the ball rolling with that? I've not. I've got a Jameer Gibbs roll, roll, Jameer roll T-shirt that he sent me. I've got his rookie card, uh, those kind of things. But we've not had that conversation, but just so proud of him. Um, and just the success that he's had couldn't happen to a better human being on the planet. Uh, just ridiculously talented but as good of a person uh, as you'll ever want to find. He is. It's, it's been fun to, to watch him and yep. see that, that I find myself rooting for. Uh, Jeff, you're, you're the best, man. I always tell people 
I don't root for teams. Uh, I root for people. I am definitely rooting for you and hope you Appreciate just it. absolutely crush this opportunity, man. Yes, sir. And we got to get a Saturday down south in Carolina blue and I'll rock that thing. Ooh, that's a good idea. Okay, I got to float that to, to the bosses yep. uh, upstairs. Yeah, we can okay. make that happen, man. Uh, you got be it, well, man. man. We'll do this again soon. Thanks, Connor. Jersey contest. It is my turn, Will. Um, okay, so I'm rocking a gray sleeve. Yes, sleeve Orlando Magic Victor Oladipo jersey. I'm showing it right now for the YouTube mm-hmm. audience, podcast audience. Bear with me. Uh, that's so sick. That's like one of my favorite, like, because when I moved to Orlando and started covering the team, the, the, that was the highlights that I saw was him at the dunk contest. And like just the, you know, the hopium that was that magic core with Alfred, our boy Mario Hazonia. That, that's a very a nice blast from the past. You say Mario Hazonia. Do I have a Mario Hazonia souvenir cup sitting right here on my desk? Oh, We're yes, survivors here, okay? Yes. We're survivors of Indiana football, magic basketball. We've been through it all, right? I've not been to a magic game this year just yet. I, I need to at some point because now they're actually so much more uh, worth watching. Um, okay, so the story behind this jersey. I did not purchase this jersey myself. This jersey was a gift, a gift that I got while I was on my bachelor party. My bachelor party, I had probably, what was it, like six, seven months after I moved to Orlando. It was like February 2016. Yeah. February 2016, and all my boys came into town. It was awesome. I was like, where, where are we going to do this? If you're listening to this, and maybe you're getting married or something like that, and you're thinking about bachelor party destinations, many of you have been to bachelor parties and stuff. Like, you know, location is a big part of this. And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I would love to just have all my friends here. Maybe it's different for me because I'm, um, I'm the guy that's, you know, been away from where I grew up for the past 11, 12 years, or at that point, it was only four years, but still it was being able to, to see everybody in the same place, worlds colliding, you know, brother, I've got my, my, my best friends from high school. I've got my, you know, I've got my cousin coming in from, uh, from Fort Myers. I've got my buddies from the baseball hall of fame that I worked with who came all the way from the Northeast to be able to spend time with me. Like it was, it was awesome. It was the type of weekend that you're just like, man, I just want to you know, stay in this, it like locked into this zone and I want time to just stand still. Um, so anyway, yeah, we went to magic game on that Friday night. We got after pretty good afterwards. We did. We definitely did. And during, I don't, they were played the Mavs that night. I think it's, I think that's, that's what it was pre very pre Luca. Um, so different uh, Mavs team that we were watching, but yeah, they got me this Jersey. And so, this jersey, I will admit, is not my favorite. I don't think that we will look back on the era wherein gray was a thing. Hmm. Oh, gray is still a thing, brother, unfortunately. I am not a gray guy. I am not. I am very much not. I am not a sleeves guy, per se. I am not advocating that the NBA needs sleeves on their jerseys. I'm showing the sleeves to the camera. I'm, I promise you I'm not flexing. It's just natural. Um, yeah. But I am not that. Uh, I, I'm not the guy that was like, oh yeah, like we, we could just get a different one. You don't return that gift. You never return that gift. And so t- for me, this right. is always way more of a sentimental type gift than like, a, oh, this is like my favorite look ever. A lot of jerseys that, that we've talked about, it's been like impulse buy. I see it. I want it. I've always loved that logo. We talked about like with the, 
you know, the Giants, like the throwback Giants, Saquon yep. jersey. This this is different for me. And I wear it still to Magic games, even though I'm acknowledging the Magic have like four or five jerseys that are probably better overall in terms of my personal taste. But the fact that like my boys like rallied and got it for me was mm-hmm. was just kind of cool. And it, it always takes me back to that weekend. And then, you know, of course, six months after they got it for me, the Magic traded Victor Oladipo and your boy was very sad. And uh, I wore this jersey for probably three or four years to Magic games just out of spite because I was upset and the team blew chunks. And mm-hmm. you, Will Ogburn, once upon a time, Try to tell me that Evan Fournier was a better player than Victor Oladipo, and I had nothing of it. And you know what? I stand by that. I no! Think Evan, I think Evan Fournier is still playing no! and being impactful right now. Give me a I, Evan Fournier could help a playoff team more than Victor Oladipo for most of his career. How, how, many, how many All-Star games did Evan Fournier go to? Um, zero. That's that's right. Okay. Just making sure. Just making sure. I, I, you Oladipo, know, I wanna... too heliocentric, the people are saying. Uh, what he did with the Pacers was pretty special. I'll yeah. say that before, you know, he kind of went a little bit off the deep end. He was never going to have a truly long career with the way that his game was, was modeled, but Pico Depot, man, good Lord. It was, it was fun. It's too bad. The magic had him in kind of in the wrong position, but what are you going to do? Yes. Uh, and I, I love that. Like that's see that kind of Jersey is like my favorite kind of Jersey because it tells the story of a time, right? You talk about yeah. Jersey stories. This is a great example. Um, you know, it's like, where were you when? And and the story of the sleeve jerseys, I had to Google this because I, I did actually remember it right. So the sleeve jerseys were put on. So maybe uh, uh, chubbier guys or guys with like, you know, uh, not as big of arms. So maybe both me <laughs> could wear an NBA jersey by itself and not, you know, commit a party foul. I get it. But if you remember, uh, LeBron hated them. He hated them so, yep. so much. So did he rip do... them off during yep, a game? Yep, that's yeah. exactly what I was about to say. I think that was the end of those jerseys when LeBron ripped the sleeves off his jersey on national television. He was having a shooting slump, which was kind of his whole Cleveland career, and he decided to blame someone else. Like, now we're doing LeBron's thing. One of my favorite things. But he decided to blame the tools, not the artists, and just rip his sleeves off. And then after that, the sleeve jerseys just started disappearing slowly. Did he disappear them? I'll have Vladimir Putin. Who's to say? But they go, they went away. Um, and and also, uh, yeah, I, I think that's super cool. And again, uh, Old Depot got to. I wouldn't be so sad. He's gone. He got to go to your version of Valhalla, Indianapolis, right? He got, he got to get traded uh, to a happy place where they loved him and they loved basketball. So he got to live his dream. And so yeah, I think that you can look back fondly at that era of Old Depot. Think about you know how he got traded to your wife's family's team and think about your boys and just think about that encapsulated a moment in your life where all that stuff was what was happening. I have an old Depot Pacers shirt. That is look as somebody who grew up nineties bulls fan, there's mm-hmm. no part of me that ever thought I would one day rep the Pacers in a non ironic way, but old Depot was fun, man. And it was fun because, you know, I covered him in college and seeing right. some of the plays that, that he made. It was just, it was ridiculous. I was I was on the beat his sophomore year because I was two years older than him in Indiana. And Mm -hmm. so that was that season. He's just starting to come into his own because he was not a a big time recruit at the Matha. And he was like one of these guys. I mean, sit down with Tom Crean for two minutes and he's going to bring up Dwayne Wade and Victor Oladipo. It's a guarantee, 100 percent every single time. Um, But like the player that he was, he was absolutely electric. And I was even watching the other day, like some of his Indiana highlights from from those two seasons and the best play that he ever made was the dunk that he missed against Michigan. If you want to go Google that one, kids go YouTube that the alley-oop that he missed against Michigan that went back rim 
hand like arm cocked all the way back that no business catching this whatsoever. And it would have been like one of the best dunks in the history of basketball. If he had been able to throw it down, like it was that good. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm an Oladipo apologist through and through, but the, the Jersey always, always definitely takes me back. And you're right. You know, it's tough to wear an NBA Jersey in public. And I like that people are kind of, you know, wearing hoodies underneath them now. So they're a little bit more socially acceptable. I've got one more NBA Jersey that I will bring to the table. I'm saving it for the very end. Okay. It's my last one. It's hopefully going to win me the Jersey contest. I'm saving for the last, if you've, Follow me on social media at any point. You've probably seen me wear it at some point. Don't ruin it. You might know what it is. Don't ruin it. We'll save it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It will not have sleeves. Okay? I'm just saying that. It will not have sleeves. I are, had are you watching this dunk right Oladipo. Oh, my God. The video is just titled Oladipo, colon, almost Jordan. And I was like, that's disrespectful. And then I watched the dunk. You know what? Actually, fair. <laughs> I'm telling you, the non-dunk against Michigan. When Michigan was number one in the country, I remember driving in – Nobody cares about this, but I remember driving back from covering a game in central Nebraska and I'm driving like middle of winter on these roads, go back and write a high school basketball story that I drove 45 minutes to be able to go cover. And I had Lauren basically being a play-by-play -play announcer on the phone for me. And I'm, she's watching this game and I'm like, I think IU was like number three at the time. And Lauren's like giving me play-by-play -play that entire game. And I think she yelped when he did that. I think she let out like a yelp. It was just like, oh my God, you got to see this. It wasn't, it didn't count, but I've never seen anything like that. It was incredible. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's another thing, like uh, one thing, you know, we connected on earlier is that, that you covered Old Depot and kind of followed the, the way that Saban just kind of followed me around, Old Depot kind of followed you around. So that's super cool. It's part of your story. If I run into Old Depot, you know, East End Market, or, you know, if he's out on the town, Winter Park, something like that, if I see him, I, that that is one that I would go up and be like, hey, man, it's been a minute. You remember me from, from covering you in Indiana? Yep. Not at all whatsoever. Uh, but he's he's one that I would definitely, definitely go up to. Always mm -hmm. will love Old Depot. All right. That'll do it. Shorter show today. We've had a lot of longer episodes this offseason, but shorter. We kept it a little bit shorter, a little bit more condensed today. Uh, if you have not, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch every episode of the Saturday Down South podcast. Follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter, at the SDS Pod, at Sat Down South, at CGO Guerra, at Go So Hard. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.